Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good evening, everyone, and good morning to Ambassador Lee. Welcome to the Asian Asia Lecture Series. My name is Amanda Wan, and I'm the founder and coordinator of the Asian Initiative Lecture Series at the Institute of World Politics. For those who are new to the Institute of World Politics, IWP is a graduate school of statecraft, national security, international affairs, and intelligence. We have a doctoral program as well as five master's programs and 18 certificates of graduate study and a continuing education program. The objective of this lecture series is to broaden the scope and discussion on a range of intelligence, foreign policy, security issues attendant to the Asian geopolitical, socioeconomic, and cultural spheres of influence. Today, we have Ambassador Lee Jung-hoon, who will be presenting a lecture on the UN's human security challenge, the plight of North Korean refugees in China. Ambassador Lee is currently Dean and Professor of International Relations at the Graduate School of International Studies, Yonsei University. He is formerly the ROC government's Ambassador for Human Rights, as well as its inaugural Ambassador at Large for North Korean Human Rights. On campus, he served as Dean of the Underwood International College and the Office of International Affairs. He has also served as the Director of the Institute of Mo Modern Korean Studies, the Yonsei Human Liberty Center, the Center for American Studies, and the Center for European Studies. His other academic affiliations include a visiting professorship at the Department of Politics, Faculty of Law, KU University, and a senior fellowship at Harvard Kennedy School's Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. Ambassador Lee has advised South Korea's National Unification Advisory Council, Ministry of Unification, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, National Security Council, and the National Assembly. In the case of Ministry of Unification, he's chaired the Advisory Committee for Humanitarian Affairs. His current domestic commitments include his role as chairman of Save NK, an NGO that helps the defector community, senior advisor to the Future Korea Weekly, a current affairs magazine, and chairman of the board of Dongwon Educational Foundation. Internationally, he's a board member of the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, based in Washington, DC, an international patron of the Hong Kong Watch, a UK-based organization that promotes Hong Kong's democracy, and an advisory council member of the International Bar Association's Human Rights Institute also based in London. He received his BA from Tufts University, MALD from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and a PhD from the University of Oxford. In 2017, he published Dongbuga Gyorangi Hanbokpaneza in English in the midst of a North Korea, Northeast Asian current. His most recent journal contributions include Deja Vu in South Korea Lessons from the 1992 Philippines Withdrawal in the Washington Quarterly in 2020 and the UN's Human Security Challenge Applied of North Korean Refugees in China, uh, which is gonna be today's lecture, in the Journal of International Politics in 2020, and North Korea's Nuclear and Human Rights Conundrum, Implications for South Korea's Unification Goal in Pacific Focus in 2020. Ambassador Lee, thank you very much for joining us today, and we look forward to your presentation. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. Um, I'd like to thank Amanda and Hannah and everyone who will be involved in, in running this Asia Initiative Lecture Series at the Institute of World Politics. It certainly is a great pleasure and privilege on my part 
uh, to-do list for the second time around. I did this uh, last year, focusing on North Korean human rights issue. Um, we're trying to focus a little more on the one particular aspect of the North Korean human rights, uh, which, are, which is, of course, the North Korean defectors, particularly those um, in China. So that will pretty much be my focus. And um, I was told to speak for about an hour, so I will do so um, by looking at the plight of the North Korean refugees in China and looking at it from the broader spectrum of the United, United Nations human security challenge. So when we talk about human security, um, what is it? You know, how, how is that different from human rights? I think the idea of this threat to humanity, I mean, individuals being, you know, individuals' rights being challenged or threatened, I mean, that's an old idea. It's, it's been there for, you know, hundreds and thousands of, of years, and it's been caused by wars, genocide, natural disasters, poverty, um, epidemic, pollution, uh, population displacements. And these sort of issues have, of course, been dealt with um, going back to like this, you know, the, the Cyrus the Great of the sixth century BC and the idea of uh, flowing from there to, you know, spreading to like um, uh, Greece and Rome and, and India. It was taken up of course, um, in 1215 by the Magna Carta. The, and of course, most recently at the UN level, the, the, the UN Charter. Um, so the idea has been there, uh, this threat to humanity, uh, the, it's, the idea has been there, but it started getting a focus. Uh, it, the, the problem was that it was much more state-centric or group, tribe, kingdom oriented, but it started getting more and more attention on an individual uh, level uh, from the 19th century on through international organizations uh, such as the Geneva Convention in, in 1864, which specifically focused in, you know, in wartime, how do you, do, how do you deal with the wounded and there will be several more Geneva Conventions. And then it would also be followed up by like the Hague Convention of 1899, 1907, which also deals with the conduct of war, how wars are, um, you know, particularly the suffering of individuals, uh, the neutral, uh, neutrals or, or uh, the medical aids, uh, the wounded, the POWs, so on and so forth. So more and more, focus on individuals and this really becomes this really becomes um, conceptualized into what it what we now refer to as the human security so human security as a concept um, although the idea was there for a long time is relatively new in international relations in the study of international relations so traditionally um, the security, the traditional security concept, very state-centric, as I um, earlier mentioned, but human security is really more individual-centric, individual-oriented. So it's a people-centered security idea, which really emerges from the 
1994 Human Development Report, which, which was published for the UNDP. And in it, the report re makes reference to the human security as a concern with human life and dignity as opposed to a concern with weapon. And this, this conceptualization of human security gets from that point onwards really um, gets promoted quite actively by the United Nations um, through the General Assembly resolutions, the Secretary General reports, as well as more recent, the Millennium Development Goals, as well as the Sustainable uh, Development Goals stipulations. And the common theme that you would um, get out of the, whether it's the General Assembly or the you know, Secretary General or the MDGs or SDGs, the common theme is the world free of poverty, hunger, disease, and want. Not to mention a world free of fear and violence. That's where human security uh, comes in. The General Assembly quickly resolution that I'm talking about is the UN General Assembly resolution in 2012, uh, which emphasizes the right of the people to live in freedom and dignity, free from poverty and despair. And the UN's intention, of course, was to reach out to the most vulnerable, wherever they may be. In some ways, it worked, but in other ways, it hasn't. In some parts of the world, unfortunately, this resolution and the commitment made forth in the resolution was more rhetorical than substantive. And nowhere more is this apparent than in the case of North Korea. You can ask the question, where's human security in North Korea? where there's systematic deprivation of people's fundamental rights, including freedom from fear and want, which of course is what the UN has been you know, drumming on uh, for decades in this notion of what human security ought to be. So speaking of North Korean human rights, and we'll get to the China part, after World War II, of course, um, I mean, World War II really left a huge legacy on, uh, on the in the international community because after World War II, people began to find out more and more about the atrocities that were uh, committed during World War II, particularly the Holocaust um, and, and so on. And there was a, a deep-seated resolve by the international community to to never repeat this sort of uh, atrocity again, there cannot be another world war because it's too painful and it's too costly. And you have to protect human rights. And to do so, um, tribunals were set up, the Nuremberg, the Tokyo Tribunal, Universal, Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted, and international covenants, international law on human rights were enacted. So combined, they, they would form what we generally refer to as the International Bill of Human Rights. Now, whether through sanctions or armed interventions, steps will be taken against regimes violating 
the Universal Declaration's ideals. And cases in point are Prem Rouge, Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, apartheid in South Africa, and the genocide in Rwanda. In each case, the UN would set up a tribunal to, to, to deal with the human rights atrocities in those particular countries. But what about North Korea? Um, which arguably um, has one of the world's worst violations of human rights in terms of the totality of the society and the duration of the society. So normally when we're dealing with like human rights violations, it's like during the wartime, um, tribal wars or you know, state wars. But once the war is over, peace treaty, things get a little better. But in terms of North Korea, it's systemic and it's institutionalized. It's almost permanent. And it's been going on since the establishment of the DPRK after World War II. And it spreads across the entire North Korean society. So the totality of the society and how long it's been going on, it, it does make the North Korean human rights issue very unique. Why there are no concerts by U2 or police or Bruce Springsteen uh, on North Korea or North Korean human rights issues when the human rights violations in North Korea is rampant and it pretty much violates every single articles of the Universal Declaration of uh, Human Rights, from extermination, murder of political enemies, enslavement, torture, rape, forced abortion, so on and so forth. The simple reason why there's lack of interest, uh, relatively speaking, is probably because we have in North Korea, probably the most closed off society in the world. Okay? You have absolutely no access to that country. No journalists can go in to take pictures or film what's going on in the political prison camps. Um, no UN officers can go um, quite freely only to designated areas. And therefore, the lack of the image, all we have going for us are the testimonies by the victims and the defectors. But there are no, no pictures or, or videos to show for the, the, the death and the extent of human rights violations, which, uh, which serves to not, you know, which serves to, um, you know, we have to have a, a, an image of what is going on in North Korea. And for an average people, we don't have that because there's nothing to go on. You know, there are no pictures and videos to, to capture that image. Why does the North Korean regime violate human rights? Why does the Kim family, um, from Kim Il-sung to Kim Jong-un violate human rights. It's one of the two tools to, for regime survival. 
Externally, North, the Pyongyang regime relies on its nuclear weapons, WMD, to keep the you know, international community at bay from interfering in domestic affairs of North Korea. Human rights violations is also a regime security tool because it helps to keep the domestic disapproval or possible revolution um, that could challenge the regime. So these are two nuclear weapons and human rights violations are two of the most important tools that the Pyongyang regime has to ensure the regime security versus human security. And this is why with no state protection, many North Koreans uh, in order to escape the persecution or hunger or whatever it may be, try to exit North Korea, leave North Korea to find a better life, whatever that means. And the only route that's really um, possible is through China. That's why we have so many North Korean defectors in China. And that's why we have all these problems rising from the North Korean defectors uh, being in China. And the situation is getting, unfortunately, worse. The situation is getting worse. Um, and I list five reasons why the human rights issue in North Korea is um, kind of taking a backseat. Um, number one, there's lack of accountability on the Pyongyang regime. Where is the accountability? All these human rights violations, all these resolutions, and yet, where's the accountability? Okay, there's a there's limit to what the international community is doing. Sure, you have the UN Security Council uh, resolutions, sanctions, economic sanctions on Pyongyang, but those those are all for North Korea's WMDs, nuclear weapons development, as well as the launching of the missile. It's not to do with the North Korea human rights violations. Secondly, the current South Korean government, Moon Jae-in government's what I call Sunshine Policy 2.0, um, it has from the very beginning to, to, to now and probably to the very end, uh, catered to a policy to cooperate with the Pyongyang regime to be on the good side. Uh, right now, I think you know, many of you in Washington probably know about the effort to replace the armistice treaty with the peace treaty. Um, it's in the, I think the US Congress and gone up to the Senate. So there's, you know, and our president met with the Pope recently in, in Rome, again. You know, talking about the peace treaty, and you know, maybe he could come. You know, the Pope could go visit Pyongyang. So, greater emphasis on cooperation and engagement naturally means that human rights issues take a back seat because raising human rights issues, um, our government thinks that it provokes North Korea. And it, it would actually hinder whatever efforts there, there might be to improve inter-Korean relations. Thirdly, the global attention on Kim Jong-un's nuclear ambition. 
So the international media is really much more focused on the WMDs, as well as his persona. What's he up to? What's his sister doing? It's almost like a soap uh, opera. Right? They're, they're so caught up in the persona and the WMD programs that the human rights issues are being uh, ignored in a, in a large sense. Number four, the previous American president, President Trump, Trump, I mean, he started out well when it comes to human rights issues. I mean, he invited um, Ji Sung-ho to the State of the Union uh, speech, invited North Korean defectors to the White House. So it all started well until uh, President Trump decided to meet um, Kim Jong-un in Singapore and then in Vietnam. Uh, um, where it was this personal charm diplomacy, thinking that his charm offensive could somehow win over Kim Jong-un. Towards what? Who knows? But it completely changed the, uh, the Trump administration's North Korea policy from accountability to engagement. Again, dismissing human rights conditions relative to the first part of his uh, administration. And of course, finally, the COVID-19, the pandemic, completely, I mean, what was already a completely shut off country, it's even more so. Okay. Um, no entry, no exit, or very, very limited. North Korea, of course, claims to having zero person being afflicted with COVID-19. And it remains one of the, I think, couple of countries in the world that, you know, that hasn't vaccinated its people. And yet, um, no COVID afflictions. And it's trending the wrong way. You know, uh, already what is, you know, the situation is pretty bad, but it's, it's I think, getting worse because um, you probably heard of the you know, like five family members, you know, back in 2017, committing suicide in China um, when they got caught and they were about to be repatriated and they chose to commit suicide rather than being sent back because they know exactly what holds for them when they return to North Korea. In 2019, there were two um, North Korean ship crew members who came to South Korea, wanted to um, defect to South Korea, and yet South Korean government forcibly repatriated them, yes, South Korea, not China, back to North Korea. Unbelievable, I'll, I'll talk about this more. Um, there was a South Korean um, maritime um, officer, officer who got was murdered on the high seas in the West Sea in 2020. And we didn't make anything out of this, no protest. And because of the COVID situation, there's a significant reduction in the defector um, numbers. Last year, it was only 229. Before that, it's at least been about 1,000 or slightly more, 229. Um, 
At peak, it was about almost 3,000 in 2011. This year, it's probably not even going to be about 100. Up to September, I think the official tally was something like 39 or something. Uh, or so. So I don't think it will, it will reach 100. South Korea, again, South Korean government um, for the past three years or so since 2019, declining to co-sponsor UN resolution on North Korean human rights. So that says a lot about where South Korean government's position is. And when South Korea takes this kind of position, it's very hard to push. I mean, we are ground zero, and yet our government is not doing its job. So, you know, that that really, it's a very telling story of, of where we are with the North Korean human rights issues. That's why I say the situation is worsening or has worsened uh, in the last few years. Yeah, so this is a, um, a follow-up to the the, the two North Koreans uh, who were forcibly sent back uh, to North Korea. Uh, this is back in November 2019. They were summarily interrogated and they were, you know, somehow the report was that they actually killed, murdered fellow crew members and therefore they posed a threat to the South Korean society and therefore they had to be sent back. This sort of reasoning counters uh, pretty much all the laws that we have uh, on the defectors in South Korea. It certainly um, contravenes the Constitution, Article 3 and Article 12. Article 3, because when the North Koreans come to South Korea and they you know, say that they want to you know, uh, settle here, they are, by our Constitution, immediately considered South Korean citizens. That's what our constitution says. The same thing can be said of when defectors reach uh, some of these uh, third countries like Thailand or Laos. Uh, they can be, they should be considered as South Korean citizens. Because that's what our constitution says. North Korean Refugee Protection and Settlement Support Act also deals with how North Korean defectors should be supported when they come to South Korea. It is not an act law to determine or vet North Korean def uh, defectors to determine whether they can stay or leave, no. That is not what the law is for. And all the past Supreme Court decisions support recognized all North Korean citizens and defectors who enter South Korea and recognizing them as South Korean citizens. And fourthly, the UN Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhumane, or de you know, Degrading Treatment or, or, or Punishment. Article three, particularly, if there's fear that they might be mistreated or tortured when they are uh, returned, they shouldn't be. That's what Article 3 of this UN Convention on T Torture uh, stipulates. This is the, um, the law that we have on North Korean refugees or defectors, which 
clearly says that when they come to South Korea, South Korea must help them to resettle in South Korea. We have to protect them. If they are criminals, then they will go through the, the, the legal procedures and criminal court hearings in South Korea, not sent back to North Korea. As I said, Koreans, North Koreans, you know, their route of leaving North Korea um, is the border with China. And the problem with China, of course, is that China does one or, you know, in China, if they're caught, they are forcibly repatriated in spite of the non-reformant principles of the UN. And even if they're not caught, they live in hiding and great majority of them endure inhumane treatment. And this is because Beijing has always and still considers the North Korean defectors as illegal economic migrants. Despite the fact that when they return, just simply by defecting, uh, they will be considered as public enemy. And some of them may be sent to North Korean gulags, you know, political prison camps, or at least uh, they will be you know, tortured or um, hurt or uh, put into some education uh, camp or whatever it may be, they will be reprimanded, persecuted in one way or another. And that's why the North Korean human rights issue presents a compelling case for a human security approach. So, in this particular article, you know, I, I, I try to uh, look at the, examine the system, systematic and legal factors substantiating the escapees claim to political refugee status and the applica applicability of the human security to their plight. And look at various options. Is it, a, is it a dead end thing? I mean, is there nothing we can do? Surely there has to be options to deal with this issue, including the possibility of establishing a UN refugee camps. Why not a refugee camp for the North Korean defectors in China? So again, um, you know, I've, generally touched on this um, earlier. So I will just say that after, after the Cold War, okay, after the Cold War, the Cold War template has been lifted in international relations. And this catch-all new concept of comprehensive security started taking root. 
And this comprehensive security took into account a lot of the non-military issues because the Cold War is over. So security is about environmental security. Uh, terrorism is about security, economic security, and human security as well. So it's kind of born out of that background, the, the Human Development Report of 1994, um, written to the UNDP that, that I was talking about earlier. So this is the background. And this will be, will be followed up um, at the 2000 Millennium Summit, where Secretary General Kofi Annan called for, yet again, world free from want and free from fear. And he would establish what is called the, in 2001, the Commission on Human Security. And this commission would publish a seminal work uh, called Human Security Now, which explored how the human component can be incorporated into the broader security agenda. So basically, you're going from the nature of conflicts being shifted from interstate to intrastate. So you're looking at countries like Somalia, Rwanda, former Yugoslavia, and North Korea as well, but with much less success when it comes to North Korea. But only fair to point out that the Human, security, human Rights Council has been um, adopting uh, resolutions in Geneva since 2003 on North Korean human rights violations. And of course, most significantly, the Commission of Inquiry report reported in February 2014. This became a you know, sea change in dealing with North Korean human rights issues because number one, uh, the COI report talks about the systematic and widespread crimes against humanity. I remember talking on many occasions with Michael Kirby um, and I asked him, you know, what about genocide? And he was of the opinion that um, he could have, the commission could have pushed for that, that there were grounds for that as well, but it is a much more difficult um, and technical aspect to, to establish and that it would have taken much longer uh, to do so. And that, and that the COI, uh, the commission felt that, um, that crimes against humanity was sufficient to push force at this juncture in February, 2014 um, to deal with uh, the issues at hand uh, in North Korea. So China considers them as illegal economic migrants. And this is why the UNHCR, um, High Commissioner's Office for uh, Refugees in China, I mean, UNHCR has an office in, in China. They don't have access to these migrants, illegal economic migrants. They would, they would have access to those asylum seekers refugees, potential refugees, but since the Chinese authorities considers them an illegal economic migrants and prevents UNHCR having access to these asylum seekers from North Korea, that their status 
whether to be accepted as refugees is just a moot point. It never goes that far. The, and so the question is, so is there no legal recourse? Certainly not, because the UNHCR and China, they have an agreement. They signed an agreement in 1995 where the UNHCR was supposed to be granted unimpeded access to refugees. But to determine who should be a refugee or not, um, the UNHCR has to interview the prospective asylum seekers, which of course China very strictly prevents the UNHCR from doing. So the process towards refugee recognition is um, completely thwarted by the Chinese government. And this contravenes China's obligation under the 1951 UN, 1951 UN Convention related to the status of refugees and also its 1967 protocol. 51 Convention uh, defines refugee as a person who owing you know, to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. The fact that North Korean refugees face detention, prison terms, torture, even execution when repatriated back to North Korea is sufficient to classify them as asylum, asylum seekers or refugees. And we have to look at the North Korean uh, political, socio-political system called Songbun. And the COI actually mentioned this quite a bit as well, because this is really the root cause of a lot of the defection that takes place. So simply to, and this is important because you know, China regards the defectors as you know, illegal economic migrants. But if you understand, the, the social stratification or inherited caste system that North Korea um, instills in the society, then you will understand that this is very political. There are, so North Korea basically, as I said, it's an inherited caste system. Uh, classifies its people into three different classes, sort of like you know the the good guys, poor class, and then the like middle of the bunch, and then this is the you know if you don't you don't want to be in the hostile class, in North Korea, and you know pundits say that you know that class is about thirty percent or more of the North Korean population. It's a systematic discrimination based on religion, political, family background. You know, if you had, um, like, for example, Kim, uh, Kim Jong-un's mother lived in, you know, in Japan, and that actually um, led her to, you know, not be in the core class. 
the intergenerational discriminatory, discriminatory system basically this determines who receives what kind of food, healthcare, education, job, and even where you live. And it's very strictly enforced by the Ministry of Protection of the, of, of the State, which targets the enemies of the state in the lowest Sangun class. And those who are targeted, of course, they are deprived of all socioeconomic opportunities, also persecuted in the North Korean detention centers or even political prison camps. And particularly hard hit are the, uh, are the Christian community in North Korea. Who knows you know, exactly what the number might be because it's all underground, 200 to 400,000, maybe you know, some say up to 1 million who are routinely persecuted and even rounded up for public execution. The COI report cited Kim Jong-un, uh, Kim Il-sung's making the following statement on religion. Religion is a kind of myth. Whether you believe Jesus or Buddha, it essentially believes a myth. We cannot take religious people to the socialist society and religious people should die to, to cure their habit. This is the view that this totalitarian um, regime's view is on Christian community in North Korea. <clears throat> so the the Sangbun, Christian Sangbun, class stratification underscores North Korean refugee issue. So it's not surprising that most of the victims of the you know, widespread famine in the 1990s are of the lower Songbun class because the distribution system, if it gets cut, it will get cut first and foremost on the low Songbun class people. And this famine, as a result, led to the exodus of tens of thousands of North Koreans, primarily residents of northernmost areas of you know, bordering China, Hangyong province in particular. These are like mining areas where many people are sent there as a form of punishment for their background, Songbun background. And humanitarian. <clears throat> Aid cannot reach them, so many of them actually escaped to China. So if you look at the North Korean defection, it really you know, uh, begins from the 1990s onward uh, with the uh, arduous March period. Weaponizing food, the denial of food, especially as a weapon of persecution, can also be, can substantiate a claim to refugee status by those who have been uh, denied. Especially 
if there is an intention by the state to target certain group as a discriminatory policy, whether it's their sex or their political views. Now, even if the departure from North Korea into China may had may have had nothing to do with political intentions. It's just pure economic. It would still allow for North Korean defectors uh, to obtain the status of refugees surplus, entitled to international protection. Why? Because when they were meet, leaving, maybe they weren't they couldn't, couldn't they, there weren't um, sufficient reasons for them to be categorized as refugees. But once, just once they cross the border into China, it is a crime to leave the country without permission. And it will be a crime to attempt to seek asylum in other country. And if they had been helped by religious organizations while in China, they become criminals, okay? And certainly subject to persecution when they return. So when at the point of origin, when they're in, a, in North Korea, maybe not, but once they've crossed over into China, um, they become refugees to class. North Korea is very clear. You know, North Korean criminal code, Article 47, specifically stipulates that, you know, those who defect or escape to another uh, country have betrayed the motherland and people. You just look at, you know, what the North Korean propaganda machines, you know, how they how they talk down the North Korean defectors, those who've settled in South Korea and elsewhere. It's scathing criticism of these traitors that they don't deserve to die. And there's always the same narrative that these are people who've uh, not only betrayed the motherland, but these are criminals. They've done bad things in North Korea. That's why they left. China is a signatory to the 1951 Convention on Refugees which means that it really should, it's obligated to protect the asylum seekers by upholding the non-refoulement principle, but it doesn't. So it's, and it's, uh, you know, it's pretty perplexing that Beijing, China, had actively endorsed the UN's 2030 agenda for sustainable development. And a lot of that agenda encompasses human security principles. We're all free of power hunger. So it certainly applies to North Koreans. And yet, whilst actively endorsing this agenda, UN agenda, in its own country, it's doing something completely different. It's double standard on China's part. 
one of the most central transformative promises of the 2030 agenda and its SDGs, leaving no one behind. It's like the, you know, the marine uh, catchphrase. And it adopted this to target certain vulnerable population being left behind. And yet, when it comes to North Korea, it's not being practiced. Why? Because China and North Korea has an agreement, agreement in 1960, basically to reciprocally repatriate, repatriate criminals, including illegal aliens. And this will be reinforced again in 1986 and then 1993. And this is why only a handful of tens of thousands of North Koreans defecting in, you know, in China find their way to Southeast Asian countries like you know, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, because most of them, when caught, will be immediately repatriated. And this is the, you know, in accordance with the agreement that China has with the PPRK. And here, because of the time limit, I'm going to be a little quicker in going through these slides. Um, there's an interesting um, survey done by the Korea Bar Association on the North Korean refugees. Um, and despite the Chinese claim that, you know, these are illegal economic migrants, if you, you know, the KBA's uh, survey in 2018 showed that a lot of them, uh, in fact, majority of those survey, surveys um, cited political reasons, longing for freedom, doubts about the regime, regime, political repression as the reasons for their uh, flight, flight from North Korea. So how many are there in China? Well, one will never know uh, exactly because uh, obviously, you know, um, we don't, uh, it's impossible to take uh, census on, on the number, but in peak, it was generally recognized to be about uh, 300,000 peak. Okay, so anywhere between 50,000 to 300,000. And that's, you know, not to say that, I mean, if you're looking at the transient population, it's of course much larger, maybe 1 million per year. This year and last year are exceptions because of the COVID pandemic. Three scenarios that's dreaded by the refugees are being caught by the border patrol, being subjected to human trafficking, and being repatriated by either the Chinese authorities or North Korea's own secret police, which operate in China, looking for these defectors to send them back home. And this is, you know, the, the North Korean defector issue in China, it's a, it's a gender issue and it's children's issue. It's a women issue and children's issue because the great majority of the refugees are women. And if you look at the, those who are settling back in South Korea, 
the number go, you know, the percentage is pretty staggering. Over 80% of those defecting to South Korea are women. Why? Because it's easy to target women for their commercial values. They would, you know, easy to traffic. Uh, they would end up in domestic servitude, surrogacy, prostitution, and on their way to uh, to defection. You know, testimonies show that probably as many as ninety percent are subjected to some type of uh, sexual violence, including rape. Children are victimized because. Not so much because children defect to North Korea, but what I mean by here is that there are many um, mixed race children in China, North Korean mother and Chinese father, and they have no identity, no papers, no nationality. But China's national nationality law, China's own domestic law provides that all children born in China are entitled to Chinese nationality if either parent is a Chinese citizen. But many are born without registration or nationality or, or live their life, uh, young life as such. Tim Peters, who is a probably one of the uh, most ardent mm, workers in this area estimates that there could be as many as 50,000 North Korean orphans, orphans in China. The UNHCR, um, well, UNHCR and China has an agreement in 1995. UNHCR is supposed to have an unimpeded access to all refugees within China. So the UNHCR Beijing should be able to determine the refugee status of all those seeking asylum seekers, including North Korean defectors. And yet China blocks their access. But it's very selective. It's very interesting because this agreement is honored when it comes to, for example, Vietnamese refugees back in the 1980s, boat people. China was very um, accepting of the UNHCR's role, unimpeded access. And it led to a significant number of the Vietnamese refugees settling in China. And, would, and this would also apply to the Laos. So there's, there, were, there was a great deal of cooperation between China and UNHCR when it came to the Vietnamese refugees. Another problem is that the UNHCR never really opted to invoke the binding arbitration regarding China's refusal to allow access to North Korean defectors. Binding of arbitration, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's in the event of bilateral dispute. China is obligated to accept an arbitrator acceptable to both parties within a 45 day period. So 
maybe you know why the UNHCR hasn't hasn't pushed forth, invoked this right, the binding of arbitration, is something to think about. After all, China is obligated under a great you know many number of UN conventions to allow this to have you know to take place. What are some alternative solutions then? I think the UNHCR still is the best hope that we have when it comes to North Korean defectors in, in China. Besides the binding of arbitration, UNHCR can explore possibly opening an official corridor through which North Korean refugees could pass through escorted by UNHCR officials on their way to say Mongolia, Vietnam or Myanmar or Laos. It's already unofficially known as the Underground Railroad where refugees are assisted by humanitarian aid workers and Christian missionaries and honest brokers. China could also save, save face by maybe announcing amnesty once in a while for illegal aliens. I mean, if China really wants to be recognized as a G2, as a soft power, as a, as a world leader. Human rights component, China has to come clean on certain aspects of human rights, especially involving um, you know, foreign entrants, asylum seekers in China. And finally, of course, refugee camp for the escapees in China or possibly in Mongolia. Is this outlandish refugee camp to, to talk about refugee camp? You know, what's very interesting is that The Guardian reported in 2017 that China actually had considered building refugee camps. Of course, not so much for um, humanitarian purpose, it was more political because China was uh, concerned about crisis in North Korea and, and there, that there could be a mass exodus of North Koreans into China, which could be quite chaotic. So they had actually planned, planned, made some secret plans, which was leaked. These internal documents were leaked, exposing plans for at least five refugee camps in Jilin province. So, you know, with you, you would normally think that refugee camp in, in, in North in China for North Koreans, impossible. No, well, China has actually um, thought about this, made plans for this. Yeah, this is again um, the so like two track different treatment of the Vietnamese refugees as opposed to the North Korean uh, refugees. The UNHCR has what is called the three-pronged durable solution to the refugee problem. One, voluntary repatriation to one's uh, homeland. Voluntary. Two, local integration into the country of asylum. And then the, the resettlement to a third country. But this sort of solution is applicable only to those asylum seekers who already have refugee status. North Koreans don't. So this sort of three-pronged dur 
you know, durable solution does not apply to the North Koreans. What should, what the UNHCR should be focusing on, its efforts, might be what I would call four-pronged immediate solution. China's reversal of its repatriation policy. UNHCR securing access to the escapees. Construction of refugee camps for immediate relief. And finally, pressuring the country of origin where all the problems begin, which is to improve human rights conditions in North Korea. This is, um, I say benchmarking Vietnam because Vietnam did a, you know, it's, if, if only North Korea could become like Vietnam in handling the returnees, those who had exited, left uh, Vietnam in the advent of the, you know, end of the war in 1973 onwards, after the US left Vietnam, so those who fled amid the communist takeover and they were returning and Vietnam worked very closely with the UNHCR and there was an MOU actually, Memorandum of Understanding in 1988 where UNHCR was granted rights to handle uh, these um, returnees and, and Vietnam was very great, you know, accommodating uh, to these um, returnees except for like dissident activists or those with criminal record. Getting at the source, um, basically talking, I'm talking about really source of course is North Korea, okay? And, and the key is what really gets at Pyong the Pyongyang regime is, the, is its fragile economy. The tools are there, international sanctions, but there are too many loopholes. Again, China is the culprit. So if only the international community can, can zone in on the international sanctions, there will be so much more the international community could do on these human rights issues as well. And finally, this is my last slide, um, accountability. So again, Ground zero, the source of the problem. Um, there were, I mean, the COI, of course, recommended an ICC referral. It was held in abeyance at the UN Security Council because of China and Russia, but the option is still there. The UN General Assembly, if the Security Council doesn't move, can come up with its own resolution, like the Uniting for Peace resolution decades ago. There is universal jurisdiction where crimes prosecuted under universal jurisdiction are considered crimes against all. So in other countries, crimes that's been committed in North Korea can be tried. We have the UN um, Office of High Commission for Human Rights, uh, the office in Seoul which can be strengthened to keep the record and um, explore accountability measures. There are no celebrities involved in, to, to raise awareness of 
the North Korean human rights um, atrocities. And this has to change. Okay? This has to change. With South Africa, if you recall, um, the apartheid or anti-apartheid movement, South Africa, um, in 1974, the UN General Assembly disapproved in 1974 South Africa's credentials and thus suspended its work in the UN. So basically, South Africa was not kicked out, but because of apartheid, its participation in like committees and its work in the UN was suspended. That's not all. South Africa was, um, was as part of the boycott. Um, you know, uh, was not allowed to participate in international sporting events and other cultural uh, boycotts against uh, South Africa. And there were a lot of like um, uh, multinational corporations. I remember uh, like Nestle, a chocolate company, divesting from South, South Africa to pressure South Africa to get rid of the apartheid system. The result, 1994, Nelson, Nelson Mandela becomes the president of South Africa. Apartheid system eradicated, uh, abolished. North Korea, you just look at it. It's just the opposite. I mean, the international, commu international community, including South Korea, just can't get more of North Korea involved in these sports and cultural events. As if North Korea's participation would change things, improve human rights conditions, or give up its nuclear weapons. It's doing just the opposite. So I think the international community really has to um, think deep and, and make a commitment, have the political will to, to, to make a change in what is going on in that country and what is going on to the North Korean defectors in China, if they are really serious about making the changes. Because otherwise, 10 years down the line, I could be talking about the same thing. And that will be a great shame to us all. And thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Ambassador Lee, for such an insightful uh, presentation. And we'll take questions now. So if you have any questions, please type them in in the Q&A chat box. And the first question is, how would you describe the DPRK-China relations in short? They're allies. Yeah, and um, I'm sure there are tensions as all bilateral relations, but they're both communist states and they have common goal in wanting to thwart American hegemony in the Asia Pacific. So probably North Korean human rights situation conditions, it is a thorn on the side of, of China and it is an obstacle in China wanting to you know, play this you know, global leadership role. But at the same time, the benefits outweigh the cost. The benefits are that North Korea is a very useful pawn in the hegemonic battle that China is waging vis-a-vis -vis the United States in this region. So 
it is not something that unfortunately that's going to turn anytime soon. So they're, you know, they're pretty close. They see eye to eye, I think, when it comes to uh, their views of the US. And that's why I think, you know, whatever um, their position is on the North Korean defectors, uh, unfortunately may continue for a while. Thank you, Ambassador. And the next question is from IWP <clears throat> Professor. Um, he says, thank you, Mr. Ambassador, for a very informative presentation on an issue that has for too long been inadequately addressed. Despite China's recalcitrance, do you think it would be feasible for the U.S. to more directly dialogue bilaterally, parenthesis, overtly or covertly, with China in resolving this issue? either through the establishment of refugee camps in southern China under <clears throat> UN or even Chinese supervision, or in having Beijing talk directly to Kim Jong-un? So um, I didn't quite get the question. The question is, I'll just so is this, is this possible? Again. Officially um, or unofficially, is that, was that the question? So despite China's recal recalcitrance, do you think it'd be feasible for the U.S. to more directly dialogue bilaterally, whether it's overt or covert, with China in resolving this issue, either through the establishment of refugee camps in southern China, under UN, or even Chinese supervision, or in having Beijing talk directly to Kim Jong-un? Yeah, I mean, um, that would be great if, um, if that was feasible. But at this juncture, to phantom a US-China direct or indirect dialogue on the North Korean uh, defector issue alone is, um, is probably not very likely at this moment. And therefore, I think this is something that has to be brought up as part of a more comprehensive um, dialogue between China and the United States. Um, particularly at the UN level. And, the, and, and this has to be, I mean, this is not just the US thing. I mean, this has to be a you know, concerted international effort. Um, so if the EU is dealing with China, they have to raise this, uh, you know, the, the North Korean asylum seeker refugee issue. When South Korea, and this is so important, when South Korea deals with China, whatever issues it may be, it has to address the uh, refugee issue. And yet, I'm afraid that South Korea, I mean, South Korea hasn't done that at all. Our government, I mean, it should start with the South Korean government. Um, and yet we've failed to do that. So hopefully when, the, when, when a new government emerges in South Korea um, in March next year, Let's hope that it's a government that at least has the guts to address these issues when dealing with China, because obviously we haven't had that uh, for the past several years. Thank you. And the next question is, how do you perceive the lack of a formal resolution to the Korean conflict affecting refugee rights for North Koreans? Refugee rights to North Koreans in South Korea? Are, are, are you talking about, I, didn't, I don't quite understand the question. 
How do you perceive the lack of a formal resolution to the Korean conflict affecting refugee rights for North Koreans? I think he's Korean asking- conflict? So you're, you're talking about the armistice treaty and the peace treaty? I'm uh, not so sure if I fully understand the question. Uh, he didn't really I, mention specifically about the armistice. I think he's asking- um, Resolution asking, of conflict, he's talking about Korean war? I think so, yeah. Oh, so I'm okay. I'm not quite sure um, if he's if the question is about the um, the uh, pr like prisoners of war during Korean War or those people who've been abducted. I think he's asking us uh, a because, specific I mean, question Korean for. War, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Amanda. I think he's asking us specific question for um, refugee refugees in China, North Korean refugees in China, that we're lacking, that there, there's a lack of formal resolution to save those people. Right. In China. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, yes, absolutely. So I think this is something, I mean, it does get mentioned uh, of the importance of the non-reformant. So this is in the COI, and actually it, they are included in the um, the UN General Assembly resolutions. So it is a it is a component that is included, and of course, uh, the principles are, as I mentioned in my uh, lecture, all included in a lot of these conventions that the UN has, right? Um, so probably the most important platform for this to be addressed um, would be the Security Council. So if only the Security Council, um, as a follow-up to the COI report, because COI report's been out now for seven years, right? Um, and there's the question and issues of a follow-up to the COI report. And I think the, and the COI report has gone up to the uh, Security Council. It, it sat on the agenda uh, for a while. So um, I think it is very, it will be very, significant for the Security Council to take on the issue. And maybe, as remember I, I said that there are nine Security Council resolutions on North Korea, uh, and yet none of them specifically deals with the human rights component. They're all about WNDs. So yes, it would be great if the Security Council for once um, adopt a resolution on North Korean human rights. Thank you very much for your thoughtful answer. And the next question is, how do Chinese people and DPRK people look at refugees from DPRK? Well, this is very interesting because um, um, when was it? Um, I forgot. The, like a few years ago, when there were um, a about thirteen North Korean restaurant uh, workers, and all of them were uh, um, women workers, female workers, and they decided to defect. Right, so that really grabbed a lot of headlines. And a lot of the Chinese um, netizens and, and bloggers were actually in support uh, of that defection um, that, you know, we hope that they will find, um, you know, freedom that they're, you know, they're pulling for them uh, and so on and so forth. So quite frankly, um, this, this close link that, you know, China has with North Korea and cooperation on 
on you know um, forcibly returning, sending back the North Korean defectors. That's at the state level. I think a lot of the I think a lot of the Chinese people, especially a lot of the Chinese young people, find it kind of embarrassing that China, or the global power, with the leadership that it wants to exude, has to um, be protector of this international embarrassment that North Korea is, Kim Jong-un. And it has to sort of you know, condone and you know, make excuses for the, the obvious human rights violations being committed in North Korea. Um, this is an embarrassment. Why, why do we have to do that? I think a lot of young, young people in China are, are raising those questions. Now that's not, so public opinion I think is forming, but I don't think it's significant enough to influence the government's policy. Um, and that's of course the limitations of a communist system. If this was a democracy in China, it would matter much more, public opinion. But because we have a one-party uh, system in China, it can just you know ignore uh, the public opinion. But hopefully not for too long. Thank you. And the next question is, um, of course, China's role is important. But do you think uh, Russia and South Korea and U.S. are they also taking a part in this problem and the solution as well? I mean, Russia, there was a um, case, I think, back in 2017. So remember in my presentation, I mentioned about in 2019, the two North Korean um, ship crew members uh, who came to South Korea were um, you know, summarily um, interrogated and then um, illegally uh, repatriated back to North Korea against their will. Interestingly, um, 2017, there was a case of a North Korean who tried, who asked for, um, to seek asylum effect to Russia and North Korea wanted him back in North Korea, be, uh, claiming that he was a, uh, criminal. Uh, I think a, you know, um, criminal in terms of like, um, um, child sex offender, right. To make it sound really, really bad. But Russia didn't send him back. Russia was of the position that if he is, then you know, this will be something that will be tried in Russia and determined. So actually, um, you know, they, they were much more in tune with international law than, than we were. Um, so yes, I mean, if there's a way to, to bring in Russia into the conversation uh, to, to deal with uh, because North Korea also borders Russia as well. I mean, just small uh, area compared to China. But if there's a way that you know somehow Russia can play a part, that would be great. But at, at the end of the day, I think this is something that's really um, um, the, the key players are obviously China. And it, it is a matter of convincing China. Who's going to convince China? And the US, the EU, the United Nations, South Korea, and all those countries that have significant dealings with China 
commercially or otherwise, um, they have to take on this issue um, and, and keep drumming in the ears of, of China that, you know, come on, let's, let's deal with this issue. So yes, there are other significant issues like Hong Kong, the Uyghurs, Tibet, um, and very little progress in, in those. Uh, so it's, it's a major challenge. But I'm just saying that the North Korean defectors in China should be added on as, as one of those issues. And yet, unfortunately, it is not being addressed uh, often enough. Thank you, Ambassador Lee. Um, today's lecture was very thoughtful and very insightful. And I think it is very important for us to continue uh, to raise the awareness of the North Korean human rights crisis, both domestically as well as you know, internationally. And thank you again for everybody for joining us today. And I'll give you a good um, eight minutes, and especially to Ambassador Lee, since you know it's morning time. And thank you again for joining us after your uh, trip from Hawaii, <laughs> literally within like six hours. And this concludes our presentation today. And I hope you have happy holidays. <laughs>